I was uh, sitting here, and I'm going to... I blew this so far, and I did eh, dry mouth, that type of a thing, and I can make excuse after excuse. But when I sat back down, Hayden was sitting over there going... <laughs> Again, I love, love seeing when the kids are mimicking what we're doing. Even, even the sounding of the shofar, all of it. Every time I hear it, I see it. In jiu-jitsu, we used to have... Um, the parents would come back and say... No, they didn't say that. <laughs> they would come back and say, tell us that, oh yeah, um, our youngest daughter, who's two, is duck-walking through the house because she's mimicking her brothers. Kids watch. They listen. They learn. They mimic. That's how they um, grow. So, Dave, thank you. According to Paul, oh, by the way, we're going to be all over Scripture today, so bear with me on that one. According to Paul, we run a race through, uh, um, throughout our lifetime. And I'm not sure how many of you have ran some type of physical endurance races or done some type of physical endurance challenge of yourself, your body, and I know anymore there's a lot that are out there, okay? And I know that there is at least a couple of people in the congregation, Dave and Mike Stanley, um, that do marathons. They train and run those. So I applaud both of you guys because running longer distances was never really my thing. I was football. I did wind sprints. <laughs> Anything over 100 yards and I was done. Okay, so, um, so there you go. I did, however, uh, in my early 20s, start riding bicycles for a while. And I would get up to the point, I would, I would climb almost daily, um, sometimes up to six times, six times a week, on the bike and take off for what mounted out to be between a three and four hour ride six days a week. Loved it. Had the time. I uh, could do it all. I... By the time I stopped riding, I was 65 pounds less than I weigh now. Uh, I was probably 15 pounds less than I weigh now when I started. So um, there definitely was benefits in doing those things. Um, this took a lot of work to develop um, that type of endurance to be able to sustain. And at times, I would do 60 and 65-mile rides. Okay, A lot of people would go, what? You're going to get on a bike and do what? Okay, that's nothing. I never made it uh, to do, never made it to the ability to do other taxing rides, such as what they call a double century ride. In California, there's this thing called the Triple Crown. You have to ride three 200-mile rides in one year to, to be able to get this California Triple Crown. There's one that's worse. It's a coast-to-coast -coast ride. It's called the Ram Ride, Race Across America. Um... The average, well, the leader on these end up getting coast to coast in just over seven days. And there's no way I'm going to get that type of endurance. I, I don't even want to try it. So, but there's people out there that do, and they develop it over a long period of time. 
But this type of physical exercise, this type of physical exercise, can be physically taxing, mentally exhausting. There are many other sports this ex- that this exists in that also require this type of level of training and commitment to finish the race, so to speak. Let me share this experiencing. Let me share this experience with you briefly. Maybe you have felt what I am about to describe briefly some other way in your life, um, and it shows up in all kinds. It doesn't have to be a physical exertion. It can be emotional. It can be um, just mental, all the way across. So here, here was my day when I would go ride. I would lightly stretch and warm up prior to mounting the bicycle for a ride. Prior to this, uh, there was a decision that had to be made about where I was going to ride, the time of day I was going to ride, any other equipment needed to finish the ride, such as a headlamp if it's going to get dark at night, or, or taillights, headlights on the bicycle so I was safe on the road, people could see me. Um, I had to consider the conditions that I was going to be riding in, such as the traffic. Um, I had to consider the terrain. Am I going off-road or am I going on-road or am I going both? Um, I had to consider the weather. Uh, is it raining? Is it triple digits? And I've ridden all the way across the board. Um, had to consider in if it's triple digits. I had to bring extra water to make sure that I was stayed fully hydrated. Um, when it was cold, we have to layer up so that as our body heats up, we can shed layers and we don't overheat, but yet we're still warm enough that the cold doesn't uh, lock up the muscles. Um, I would even have to decide whether I'm going to need sunscreen or not. So, and I usually took sunscreen even on a, uh, a moonlit ride. So, Prior to mounting the bicycle, I would need to commit myself to what I was about to do. And that took thought process. Initially, it took more thought process than later down the road. Okay? Even when the warm-ups and light stretching, even with those things, my muscles were not as loose as they needed to be, but the writing would soon loosen them up. Okay? And usually along about the 12th to 15th mile, um, my body is hitting that point where it goes, really, you're doing this to me again? And it wants to quit. And I would have to keep pushing and keep pushing, keep fighting both mentally and physically to keep moving forward. But once I passed that, I would set into what people call the zone. And any of those who have been done fairly large physically exercise, they get to this area called the zone. And I was able to keep riding for two, two and a half hours with very little uh, discomfort, very little challenge. It was just able to just go. Um, about the time I moved into the zone, my body was able... Oh, wait, let me go back a little bit more. Toward the last part of the ride, uh, maybe with like 10 to 12 miles left to complete, most of this being hilly because I lived upstairs, uphill um, from where I used to ride most of the time, I would face another more difficult mental challenge, supported by being physically tired, um, and a quickly expiring level of energy. My quad muscles also usually began to burn at that point because now I'm focused on doing all uphill all the way for the last 10 to 12 miles. Um, I would slow. 
on the bike, I would stretch them out, which would, um, without getting off the bike, because I didn't want to stop and then start and stop and start. That's, that's worse. But I would keep going and this would keep getting me a little further. And I didn't just do that once. I had to do it multiple times over. Okay. Whatever I needed to do to finish that ride. So maybe some of you have experienced this in your life. Um, that this story triggers in your memory. Yes, I have experienced something like that. I would suggest the race that Paul refers to at times is very much like the story. I would suggest what we experience in our life is very much like that. There's going to be times that we're going to be able to hit the zone and just keep moving. Not a problem. There's going to be times that we're going to come up over those little hills. It's going to take a little extra work, but not an issue. There's going to be times that we're going to hit some very extreme stuff that we really face physical and mental challenges um, in this race of life. And through comfort, through help, through other activities, through those types of things, it's going to keep moving us forward. Our focal point is in Peter, First Peter, um, chapter one, three to nine, and I'm going to kind of tear this this apart to some degree. So I'm just going to read. Uh, I'm missing something here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter writes that we have um, been caused to be born again through God's mercy. And I thought about that. And I thought about the opposite side of that. And part of the readings this week were about part of the story of Noah, but I went back a little further, back to the, uh, chapter 6, where it talks about the corruption of man. Genesis chapter 6. Verses 1 and 2 say this. Now it came about when, uh, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The reference of the sons of God are... Um, the sons of men who are faithful in God. They are following God. They are doing as God um, has commanded them and those types of things, such as Noah. The daughters of men is the idea of they, the daughters of the ones that are representative of the world, okay? the things that are not of God. Um, and they started to intermingle or intermarry between them. And what happens... When one apple goes into a barrel, or when a full barrel of apples that are all ripe is great, right? What happens when you put a rotten apple in it? Does the other apples make it the rotten one better? No. The rotten one will then infect all the other apples around. And if you don't move it out, you don't clean it out, you don't purge that apple and the things that are around it, the whole barrel will be bad. Okay? Okay. 
Verses five, picking up at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he um, was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land and man to uh, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky for I am sorry that I have made them. God was done. He called all of man, mankind wicked. And their behaviors and their thoughts and what the desires of their heart were all wicked, all against, all evil, all against God. And God had planned to wipe out every living thing on the face of the earth. My question is, what if he'd have stopped there? We don't know what would have happened. We don't know. I mean, he has several options he could have done. We may have never even been here. This setting, this disciple center, any of this stuff may have not existed. God could have said, I'm done. I'm over. I'm going to go do something else. He could have started over completely with a brand new creation. He could have just found a different way to show who he is to the angels, as Paul suggests. That's the, one of the reasons that we are here. is So the angels learn more about who God is through his interactions with us. We may never have had the option to be born again for God's purpose and a blessing if God excuse me, would have stayed with this option that was clearly judgment. But God didn't stay there. Verse 8 says this, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God chose to give mercy to mankind through Noah and his family. I'm glad he didn't stay at the judgment. So Paul says that we are going to be born again to have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For what purpose? To in obtain an inheritance. The inheritance, it says, is imperishable. In other words, it's not going to spoil. You're not going to be able to put it in a barrel with other inheritances. Kind of a joke. And have it, have it go bad if any of the other inheritances are bad, right? It's... It's not going to go bad one way or the other. It is undefiled. It is pure. And it will not fade away. Isaiah 43.13 says, God acts. Who can reverse it? When God puts something in motion, that is going to happen. It's not going to stop. There's not anything that we can do unless we somehow convince God to wait. Don't go there yet. What about this? There's, there's examples of that with Moses, with David. But once God acts, no one can reverse it except God. The inheritance that we are going to get is reserved for us in heaven. But 
I don't think it all is there in heaven. The majority of it is. But I think there's a process that's going on, and I'll talk about that. I wanted to say this, that God chose mercy. Second Corinthians refers to God as the Father of mercies. The inheritance is reserved for a couple of people. This is back into Peter. The inheritance is reserved for a couple of people who are, I'm sorry, not a couple, but for a people who are protected by the power of God through faith. But there are some that will fall away. And it is likely that these individuals who call themselves believers never really were in the first place. In Timothy, it talks about this. Let me find it real quick. Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 5 says this. For the, um, excuse me, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. I've seen that going on today. They just want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be tested. They don't want to be told, no, that's not right. You need to go this way. They just want to hear that, oh, everything's great and joyous and wonderful and let's keep going. That individual tends to not be that concerned about this. Not be that concerned about God. Not be that concerned about taking God at His word, taking Him seriously. But, hey, I'm doing the good thing. I think I'm going to go sit here. Uh, be a front row person. Wow, you know, Pastor, that was a great message today. It really helped. Hey, let's go party, man. You going to throw this thing out? Let's do this. Let's go find some women. Two different lives. They will accum- accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. When they don't like what they're hearing, and it's scriptural, they go somewhere else till they find what they want to hear. And will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. Peter talks about the inheritance will be for a salvation, so that we do not have to have God's judgment. And I would like to split the difference between God's judgment and God's correction. His correction sometimes may feel like judgment. But if we look back at Noah, when he corrected the earth, it was pretty extreme. If he would have cast judgment, it would have been worse. This imperishable inheritance is to be revealed at the last day. This is the return of the Lord at the coming of Him um, as the King of Kings just prior to the thousand-year millennial reign. Dr. Stokes has been, his series has been focused um, on this revelation of Jesus in the last days and all all of the detail that surrounds that. 
there seems to be this process where pieces are done as we go along so we are ready for the final product, so to speak. Bible says if we had our full salvation right now, there'd be a new heaven and a new earth. It would be as it would have been from the beginning before the fall. I don't see that. We have problems such as ozone layers. We have problems, if you haven't noticed, and maybe it's just me, but the world seems to be getting more angry, more selfish, more, I'm going to solve things through aggression or lawsuit or power and control over other individuals. That doesn't sound like it's a new heaven and a new earth operating the way God said it's going to be operating. Verses 6 and 7 say this in Peter. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith... being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It says we rejoice greatly. And I really think we should. I think there's a difference in us rejoicing and celebrating daily, even the struggles and trials that we go through. And continually, daily, just say, life is horrible. Why is this going on? I can't believe this. You're a jerk, right? I catch myself, my own self, when I get tired and when I get overstressed and overworked that I slip into that thought process that's very, very negative, and I see the effects of those things going on around me. And it doesn't just affect me. It affects all the people who I'm interacting with. If I can learn to challenge myself to try to maintain the greatly rejoicing, even in the trials and tribulation, and I believe one day, I will, we all will, even while we're going through those times, be able to maintain that attitude. that it will still affect the people around us, just not the same way. So far, everything has been positive and wonderful in these verses, but this, we benefit from all this, but there's a but. There's always a but. Always got to be a but. And I have noticed at work, as we as humans... Um, if we are not challenged, we become bored. And that old adage keeps coming back to my mind every single week when I've been at work. Idle hands are the tool of the devil. The kids that I work with are saying those things. They're not saying it in those words, but they're saying it. I get bored and I get in trouble. 
I get bored and I make bad decisions. If, they're, if we're not challenged, then I think as humans we tend to, unless we strive to overcome it, start going down a path that is not healthy for us. It says trials... Well, let me say that, let me read James. James really says it best. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 says this. Consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I was never able to step on that bike from the time I bought it and step off and ride 60 miles. Just couldn't do it. I struggled at riding two and three miles. Didn't have the endurance. My muscles weren't prepared for it. I wasn't eating the right foods. I wasn't making the right decisions. But I learned as I went. forces this and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing we must build our endurance to successfully complete this race that Paul talks about this is typically not that fun although it is extremely beneficial We as humans have a selfish nature. I don't believe it's this blank slate that they've talked about. I believe that we are born selfish, and I believe that there's a very good purpose for that. Because when we're born, I can't tell you that, hey, can I, can I get a steak? Because I could, like, really, wait a minute, I can't eat a steak. Wait, how about a milkshake? Right. I can't tell you what I need. I can't tell you what I want. Except through crying. So when I cry, I get. When I cry, I get. When I act, I get. And we keep doing that. And we keep doing that. And slowly, bit by bit, I learn. But if that selfishness is never trained out of us, then I, we get a 40-year-old person who when they whine and cry, people bend to them. Because they don't want to hear it. Is that the person most people want to be around? No. But that's what's worked for them, and nobody has ever taken the time to work them out of it, to work them toward adulthood. So if we succumb to the selfish lust, and this is a thought process, it's a, you know, I know it's not supposed to be right, but one time's not going to hurt. Alcoholics get that line through their head all the time. It's just once, just one drink. When I used to work at the Betty Ford Center, one of the guys that had that thought process checked himself out because he legally met the requirements. So his license for whatever he was doing was going to be restored and everything was going to be okay. He goes to the airport, he gets on the plane, flies to his destination, has one glass of wine on the plane because one's not going to hurt. Monday morning, he was checking himself back into rehab 
with a 5.1 blood alcohol level. Should have been dead. But one's not going to hurt. But that thought process, we have to challenge. To succumb to the selfish lust of the body makes it easier to do it the next time. And that depends on the consequences that are felt. I get emotional over this because I hate this body. I can't stand it. My mantra has gotten to the point of, I cannot wait till we have a body that won't succumb to sin. That's what I want. And that's what we'll get. But in this process, we're building endurance. To overcome the less of the body builds endurance. Does this mean that trials are over? Nope. They prepare us and move us forward, all along bringing us praise and glory unto God through us. I would suggest that there are a few different sources that produce trials that we experience. First would be our own poor decisions which produce their own negative consequences, which can be burdensome and difficult at times So, uh, for some to overcome on their own. And if we don't learn from the consequences that come along with those, we're doomed to repeat them. Another one would be natural courses in life. Through illness, or death, or Struggles, physical struggles, disease, sickness, illness, stuff that's ongoing long-term, stuff that's very serious, chronic pain. And another one would be the trials that we experience because we are identified with Jesus or the body of Christ. First Peter 4.12 through 19 says this. I am still in James. Beloved, do not be uh, surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree but to the good degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation, the Lord's return, of his glory, you may be rejoiced, you may rejoice in exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. That's those poor decisions that we make on our own. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, let him glorify God. 
For it is for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also uh, who suffer according to this will of God entrust their souls to be a faithful creator in doing what is right. I would say in all of these circumstances, whether it be our own poor decisions, because I've experienced that one, whether it be in natural cause of life, experienced that one, or trials that we experience because we are identified as a believer, done that one, in all these circumstances, God brings us strength and endurance and comfort. We are not alone. Verse 7 states that the proof of your faith. And I wanted to look at that. What is the proof? The proof is works. How do people see? How do people know who you are, that you're a believer? How do people know that you are in line for this inheritance? It's through your works. Notice that the that works that a person performs does not provide salvation. Salvation is a gift, and it cannot be earned. But our works provide proof of our faith. We have faith, and therefore we believe. And in believing, we do. So our, fa- our faith affects our belief, and our belief affects our behavior. So we do as we are shown in Scripture, commanded by God, if we believe in Him. Peter states that the proof of faith is more precious than gold. And like gold, our works will be tested by fire. Which works will be, which works will be consumed? That's my question. Because we're going to do both. We're going to do all different kinds. When gold is smelted, the impurities are burned off. And when our works are tested by fire, only that which is eternal will ultimately last. The temporal will be destroyed. Romans 2. Starting at verse 6 says this, Who will render to every man according to his deeds? To those who... By perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfish, selfishly ambitious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but the glory of God uh, and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Those are those are the works. They're they're divided between being selfish ambition 
and those who are seeking for glory and honor and immortality, which only comes through God. First Peter also talks about works. Chapter 1 and verse 13 says this, Therefore, gird your mind, gird your minds, keep for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on grace to be brought to you at the revelation of uh, Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the uh, former lusts which were uh, yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One um, who called you, be holy yourselves also in your uh, behavior, because it is written, you shall be um, holy, for I am holy. And if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each man's works, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth. We are to gird our minds for action that keep us sober in spirit and that we have hope and grace and bring glory unto God. And how long are we supposed to do that? The entire time that we inhabit the earth. We are not to conform or we are not to conform to the former lusts, but we are to be holy. First Peter verses eight and nine. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Verse 8 reminds me of the interaction between Jesus and John a little bit. Not uh, John, I'm sorry, uh, Thomas. In John chapter 20, after Jesus has already returned, and he's already seen the other disciples and several of the people on the road, in verse 26 it says, after And after eight days again, his disciples were inside, and Thomas, with them, Jesus came, uh, the doors having been shut, and stood in the midst of, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here, and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it in my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are, the, are they who did not see and yet believe. We are them. We are part of them. We have not seen Him. But yet we believe based on what has been written and what has been said and the work that the Spirit has done with inside of us. Verse 30 says, Many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written for the purpose that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. We will gain salvation of our souls, which brings glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus which is in his return. But we have to endure. And we have to learn 
And we have to change according to what God has set forth. Paul says this in Hebrews chapter 12, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which is so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Life is filled with many bicycle rides. Some are going to be a little easier, some are going to be harder. Some are going to be challenging. Each one will build endurance. Each one will teach us something that will prep us for when Jesus will be revealed as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray.